0: I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week, we gather right here to examine the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of faith on our daily lives, so that together, we can prepare to live outside the walls. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to have a conversation with Joe Heshmeyer. He's a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas, and is currently studying at the North American College in Rome. Uh, he formerly was a litigation attorney in Washington, D.C., and you can kind of get that sense from him. He's very thorough, uh, and he's very into nuance, which I appreciate. So uh, he's also one of my favorite bloggers. He blogs at the website shamelesspopery, P-O-P-E-R-Y, shamelesspopery.com, and he deals mainly in apologetics. But really goes quite in depth and more than I generally find with apologists uh, and what he, he also cites all of his work. And so you can kind of follow behind him and follow his train of thought and see where he's coming from. Everything's laid out very clearly in a very logical manner, uh, but it is rather in depth. And uh, so if you're used to those four or five paragraph uh, answers, then he is not the person to look for uh, because when you go to the website, in an individual article Uh, maybe you know 15 20 paragraphs and you just keep going and okay okay I can see where you're going you just have to have a really good attention span so we're gonna be talking to him today about the perpetual virginity of Mary of course we're in the month of May right at the very end of the month of May but May is the month of Mary and I wanted to make sure that we had some opportunity to address one of those topics a topic of a Marian doctrine during this month of Mary so uh, we're going to talk with him today about that, and if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know that I generally don't do apologetic shows, but I've wanted to do this one uh, because recently I, I was at, a, an, at an event, and a cradle Catholic asked a question that I've only ever heard uh, Protestants ask before, and so I was struck by that and thought, well, this is the opportunity here at the end of the month of May for us to look into that a little bit more deeply. So, Joe's going to be on in the, uh, in the second and the third segments. Now, we didn't have time to play all of our conversation. And so, if you'll go to social media this week, facebook.com slash step outside the walls, you'll also find a link on Twitter. My handle there is at outside the walls. We'll post an audio clip that didn't make it into the show. Of course, this was a pre-recorded interview this week. Uh, and so, we'll be able to add that little bit of extra content for those of you who will go over to our social media. So let's go ahead and begin our time together as always in prayer. Let us glorify our Savior who chose the Virgin Mary for his mother. Let us ask him, may your mother intercede for us, Lord. You gave the Virgin Mary the joys of motherhood. Grant all parents joy in their children. May your mother intercede for us, Lord. King of peace, your kingdom is one of justice and peace. Grant that we might seek those things that will further harmony among men. May your mother intercede for us, Lord. You came to build the human race into a holy people. Bind the nations together in the unity of the Spirit. May your mother intercede for us, Lord. You were born into a human family. Strengthen with love the bonds of family life. May your mother intercede for us, Lord. You came to a life of weakness in our world. Grant to the dead the life of glory in your kingdom. May your mother intercede for us, Lord. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Grant us, Lord, we pray, the joy of continual health of mind and body, and through the intercession of Blessed Mary, Ever-Virgin, free us of this present sadness. Fill us with eternal joy. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Today's first reading comes from the book of Sirach, 51st chapter. I thank the Lord and I praise Him. I bless the name of the Lord. When I was young and innocent, I sought wisdom openly in my prayer. I prayed for her before the temple. I will seek her until the end, and she flourished as a grape soon ripe. My heart delighted in her, my feet kept to a level path, because from my earliest youth, I was familiar with her. In the short time I paid heed, I met with great instruction. Since in this way I have profited, I will give my teacher grateful praise. I became resolutely devoted to her, the good I persistently strove for. My soul was tormented in seeking her. My hand opened her gate, and I came to know her secrets. I directed my soul to her, and in cleanness, I attained to her. That reading again comes from the book of Sirach, chapter 51. Today's response oral psalm comes from Psalm 19. The precepts of the Lord give joy to the heart. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The decree of the Lord is trustworthy, giving wisdom to the simple. The precepts of the Lord give joy to the heart. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eye. The precepts of the Lord give joy to the heart. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true, all of them just. The precepts of the Lord give joy to the heart. They are more precious than gold, than a heap of purest gold, sweeter also than syrup or honey from the comb. The precepts of the Lord give joy to the heart. Today's gospel comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Jesus and his disciples returned once more to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple area, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders approached him and said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I shall ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism of heavenly or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed this among themselves and said, If we say of heavenly origin, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say of human origin? They feared the crowd, for they all thought John really was a prophet. So they said to Jesus in reply, We do not know. Then Jesus said to them, Neither shall I tell you by what authority I do these things. That reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Today's reading from church history is going to come from St. Jerome, out of a document entitled Against Helvidius. Now Helvidius was a person who had written a pamphlet denying the perpetual virginity of Mary. And uh, so, on much urging, St. Jerome took up the topic. Now, we're going to, of course, talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary today. And this is a doctrine that doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense to our modern minds. Because we open up the Bible and we see written out clearly in English, uh, are these not the brethren of the Lord, the brothers and sisters of the Lord? Uh, We clearly see that Joseph didn't know his wife, uh, until after she had born a son. We, we see these things written out very clearly in English, and so it, it contradicts the doctrine, uh, so we think. But the issue is we're looking at more than just words. We're looking at a document written to first-century eyes in another language. And so not only do we have to get over uh, the fact that there are different uses of words in different languages, but we also have to get over the fact that we are not approaching it in the same way that people from that time and place would approach it. And so because it's such a difficult doctrine and causes no no short amount of consternation uh, among the faithful, it's something that we're going to look at today in depth. So this is section 20 and 21, out of St. Jerome's against Helvetius. and Of course, we'll talk more about this in depth afterward. St. Jerome says this, "'I now direct the attack against the passage "'in which, wishing to show your cleverness, "'you institute a comparison between virginity and marriage. "'I could not forbear smiling, and I thought of the proverb, "'Did you ever see a camel dance?' Are virgins better, you ask, than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were married men? Are not infants daily fashioned by the hands of God in the wombs of their mothers? And if so, are we bound to blush at the thought of Mary having a husband after she was delivered? If they find any disgrace in this, they ought not consistently even to believe that God was born of the virgin by natural delivery. For according to them, there is more dishonor in a virgin giving birth to God by the organs of generation than in a virgin being joined to her own husband after she has been delivered. Add, if you like, Helvetius, the other humiliations of nature, the womb for nine months growing larger, the sickness, the delivery, the blood, the swaddling cloths. Picture to yourself the infant in the enveloping membranes. Introduce into your picture the hard manger— the wailing of the infant, the circumcision on the eighth day, the time of purification, so that he may be proved to be unclean. We do not blush. We are not put to silence. The greater the humiliations he endured for me, the more I owe him. And when you have given every detail, you will be able to produce nothing more shameful than the cross, which we confess in which we believe, and by which we triumph over our enemies. But as we do not deny what is written, so we do reject what is not written. We believe that God was born of the virgin because we read it. That Mary was married after she brought forth, we do not believe because we do not read it. Nor do we say this to condemn marriage, for virginity itself is the fruit of marriage but because when we are dealing with saints, we must not judge rashly. If we adopt possibility as the standard of judgment, we might maintain that Joseph had several wives because Abraham had, and so had Jacob, and that the Lord's brethren were the issue of those wives, an invention which some hold with a rashness which springs from audacity, not from piety. So you say that Mary did not continue a virgin, I claim still more that Joseph himself, on account of Mary, was a virgin. So that from a virgin wedlock, a virgin son was born. For if, as a holy man, he does not come under the imputation of fornication, and it is nowhere written that he had another wife, but was the guardian of Mary, whom he was supposed to have to wife, rather than her husband, the conclusion is, is that he who was thought worthy to be called the father of our lord remained a virgin that reading today comes from saint jerome against helvetius and of course i always find it entertaining uh, when saints get snippy there's no small amount of sarcasm dripping from that the pages the paragraphs uh, there in that document. Now, we read only a very small snippet right towards the end. We read uh, paragraphs 20 and 21 out of, I think, 23 or 24 uh, paragraphs in total. The whole document is worth reading and really uh, is very enlightening. We'll put a link to that on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle there is at Outside the Walls. Go ahead and follow us, like us there, and you'll get a wealth of information as time goes on. Now, later in the show, we're going to be talking with Joe Heshmeyer and he's going to address uh, some of the same things that St. Jerome addresses in his document, and really break out to us the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, what it consists of, and why it's important. And in the future, if you have a question about Catholic doctrine that maybe you haven't gotten a sufficient answer for, and you want something a little bit more in-depth, why don't you give us a call and let us see if we can take a crack at it. You can leave that message, you can leave that question on our comment line, 918-928-KPIM, and it might just end up on a future show. Later in the show, we're going to be giving away a rosary for the month of May, the month of Mary and The Secrets of the Rosary by St. Louis de Montfort, courtesy of catholicsacramentals.org. Longtime friends of the show. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Today, we're talking with Joe Heshmeyer. He's a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas and is studying currently at the North American College in Rome. He also is a blogger on the blog Shameless Popery, which is one of my favorite apologetic blogs because it really digs into the topic and doesn't just treat it... Uh, like a soundbite, so Joe, welcome to the show again. Oh, great! It's good to be on here. So, uh, I uh, I generally have tried to stay away from a lot of apologetics on the show because uh, my desire is to do a show that's really focused on helping the Catholic understand the implications of our faith. Right? Not not so much how to answer our friends although sometimes that'll come in, but really, how can we live our faith in a more vibrant way? Uh, but recently, I was at an event, and I was surprised. Uh, I don't know why I was, but I was surprised that some of those who had been in the, in the Catholic Church their whole lives, cradle Catholics, uh, were asking some questions about specifically the perpetual virginity of Mary, one of the, the Marian doctrines of the Church. Uh, the same kinds of questions that I hear from Protestants all the time. And I thought, well, perhaps uh, this is really a more important topic to bring up on the show than I had previously thought. Uh, and so we've been talking just a little bit, uh, you and I, um, about about this topic, and you've blogged about it proficiently in the past. And so I wanted to get your take uh, on some of the really common arguments uh, about the perpetual virginity of Mary and then as we get into this next segment uh, after this I want to talk about what does it matter what are the implications so first in this first little segment we're going to deal with uh, the questions that commonly get brought up uh, about didn't Mary have other children because it says uh, you know Joseph didn't know her until she had bore a son and there's another uh, objection that the, the scripture says are not his brothers and sisters among us uh, it gives us the names of some of the brothers in Scripture. Uh, and then you, we also have, uh, you know, just, um, oh, well, you know all of the objections. So why don't you maybe take those one at a time and kind of give us the answer? What does what, what the Catholic Church believe about these maybe troubling passages to some of us? Uh, and what implications does that have for the perpetual virginity of Mary?
1: Okay, I'd be happy to. Uh, Well, the first, let's actually start with the very last one you raised, which is that Scripture allegedly records uh, the names of the brothers of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And um, particularly, I think if you want to see a good proof text for this, is Mark 6, verse 3, where um, some of those around Jesus object to him, and they say, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So when you read that in isolation, it sounds like it's saying Mary has other kids. And it's definitely referring to Jesus having other relatives. Right. But there's a couple things to note there. The first one is just a general objection, which is that in Hebrew, you don't have a term for cousins um, or for nephews or for nieces. And so you have basically two sets of terms that are used. If you've got a vertical uh, relationship, like if you're the ancestor or descendant of someone— you'll refer to them as your father or as your son, even if it's your great-great-grandfather. So when they say, our father Abraham, they aren't literally saying Abraham is, is one generation removed from them. And likewise, if you've got anything along a horizontal uh, relation, like, again, cousins, nieces, nephews, and brothers, you, you say brother. Right. So there's a, a really clear example of this in the book of Genesis, when Abraham and Lot are referred to as brothers, even though we know from uh, the fuller context that Lot is actually the son of Abraham's brother. So we would say nephew, but they would say brother because their term brother is is much more inclusive. So that's one of the things that we've got to deal with here. They're talking about a horizontal relation with Christ, but that point alone isn't enough to prove the Catholic case because a Protestant can say, okay, we'll grant that, that these people were not speaking Greek. They were speaking Hebrew. Hebrew doesn't have a word. Uh, distinguishing brothers from cousins, but why should we think they're cousins instead of brothers? And that's where right. the more important point comes in because it tells us the names. It tells us, for example, James and Joseph. And we hear about James and Joseph again in Matthew 27 at the cross. It's listing the women who are at the cross. And it said, uh, this is uh, verses 56 to 57. And many women were there beholding him afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. Hmm. So right there, it's just said that there's another Mary who's the mother of James and Joseph. And just to make sure that no one could come away thinking that's the Virgin Mary being talked about there, Mark 15 has a parallel account referring again to Mary the mother of James, the last son of Joseph. But then John, in 1925 to 26, says, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clophis, and Mary Magdalene. Now, that's an intriguing passage because there are are a few ambiguities. Whether Mary, the wife of Clophis, is the virgin Mary's quote-unquote sister or not. In other words, are there three people listed there or four? And, And the syntax is ambiguous. So... The, the best argument is that they're actually referring to something like sisters-in-law. Again, remember, uh, this is a horizontal relationship, so you can describe it as sisters. Right. No one's literally claiming that the Virgin Mary's parents, Anne and Joachim, named both of their daughters Mary. <laughs> so we're, we're looking at a not literally biological sister relationship. But if they're sisters-in-law, if, for example, St. Joseph is the brother of Clophis and both of them are married to women named Mary, This isn't particularly surprising. This would make sense of why uh, James and Joseph are referred to as Jesus' brothers because they're his cousins. It also explains why their mother is referred to as Mary's sister. But we don't even need to get into the fine details there. We don't need to sort out what the exact relationship is. All we have to do is see, okay, here are these people described in Mark's gospel as being the brothers of Christ, but they have a different mother and a different father. In no world are those brothers. In
0: the right. sense that we use the term "brother," you know, this was something that uh, that was kind of a, an obstacle for me when I was coming into the church because my my father is Methodist clergy. He's an evangelist and travels around, and one of the things he does is uh, these dramatic, comedic monologues of the Old and New Testament. And one of the the, the storytellers uh, that he uses to tell those stories is James, the brother of Jesus. And so this was, you know, I I grew up around James, the brother of Jesus, and and him telling these stories as being a sibling of Christ. And so it it was kind of a a jolt to me that this was even a doctrine. But a a similar jolt in the other direction was when I came to realize that the founder of my previous tradition, I grew up in the Methodist Church, uh, John Wesley wrote a letter back in the 1700s called uh, A Letter to Catholics, Letter to Roman Catholics. And in that letter he says, here are the things that we agree on And he's going down the whole list of the creed and everything else. And then he says, we believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin who remained spotless before as after. I'm like, wait a second. You mean all the way up at 1700, we still had people and not only people, but Protestants believing that Mary was perpetually virgin? Uh, Maybe I'm the one who needs to rethink these things. Yeah, One of the most surprising things about that is that the perpetual virginity of Mary
1: was just universally treated as true not just at the time of the Reformation, but also at the time of the early church. And actually, one of the the clearest proofs for this is when you look to see someone who did object to it. Um, Back in the 4th and 5th century, there was a a guy named Helvidius, and he wrote a tract against the perpetual virginity of Mary. Mm -hmm. And St. Jerome, who is famous in both Catholic and Protestant circles, he translated the Latin Vulgate, and Protestants claim that their canon is based on uh, Jerome's canon and his translation. So everyone respects Jerome and his biblical knowledge okay. and kind of just his his expertise he's one of the first four people declared a church father. And he's raised this issue about Helvidius's pamphlet and his response is hilarious because he begins by saying, I was requested by certain of the brethren not long ago to reply to a pamphlet written by one Helvidius. I've deferred from doing so not because it is a difficult matter to maintain the truth and refute an ignorant bore who has <laughs> scarce known the first glimmer of learning, but because I was afraid my reply might make him appear worth defeating. So the entire thing is that Jerome, Jerome thinks this is so insane, so ridiculous, like who could possibly object to the perpetual virginity of Mary that he holds off even responding to it because he doesn't want to legitimize a ridiculous argument. Wow. So, it, you know, it's... Almost 180 degrees opposed from the situation you describe with with yourself and with Methodism and, and your own family. Thing. Right. Everyone just knew Mary was a perpetual virgin in the early church. Like the earliest Christians, universally recognized this.
0: Right. Well, and what's interesting to me is not only did the early Christians recognize this, but even you know we have such a short memory. Uh, even in the 1700s, the the Protestant founders. Uh, believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. And somewhere along the lines, those who still carry their banner have forgotten all about it. Yeah, it raises a lot of issues
1: in terms of kind of looking at the tradition. So, you know, you could say it this way. If God reveals himself to humanity, it's inconsistent to say that we have all universally screwed up our reception of that revelation. Because if you reveal yourself in such a way that no one sees what you've revealed, huh. in what way have you actually revealed anything? Like if, if you try to show someone like the watch on your arm, but no one's looking at you, it's not really revealed. Right. So likewise, if no one receives the, the revelation, if no one accurately gets this, this picture of Mary, we've got a problem in terms of even calling it revelation. So the fact that there's this universal unbroken tradition about Mary's perpetual virginity is, is really critical because to deny it, is ultimately to deny that anyone correctly received revelation from God.
0: Now, there have been some people who have asked, uh, "Why do we make a deal out of it? Why? Why is this an issue for belief? Why can't it go uh, one? Uh, you know, why can't a person choose to believe it or not choose to believe it?" And maybe that's an answer that's too long. But if we can hit it quickly, let's uh, let's just address that. Sure. Thing. You know, I think that from a Jewish
1: context is really the place you have to start you look at the Ark of the Covenant and look at the way the Ark of the Covenant is treated. It's so holy that it can't be touched. Um, if you look in Second Samuel chapter 6, there's this great scene. David is trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And so he goes through Baal, Judah, through the hill country of Judah for three months. And that's where he spends at one of the houses. And there he dances before the Lord. Right. And the question he asks is, how can I bring the Ark of the Covenant unto me? And all of this is in a really clear way prophetic of the visitation, when Mary goes to Elizabeth. It even begins the same way, it says, David arose and went. Okay. And then in Luke 1, it says, Mary arose and went. And she goes into the hill country of Judah. She goes there for three months. And there, John the Baptist dances in the womb before her and before the Christ child within her. And Elizabeth's statement to her is, how can it be that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So she's referring to Mary as if she's the Ark of the Covenant.
0: Wow. Well, we're going to have to come back to that. We're coming up on a hard break. Uh, We're talking with Joe Heschmeyer, seminarian for the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas, currently studying at the North American College in Rome. Uh, And you're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking through the break. I'm Timothy Putnam, and you're listening to Outside the Walls. Today, we're talking with Joe Heshmeyer seminarian for the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas, and a student currently at the North American College in Rome. We're talking about the perpetual virginity of Mary here at the end of May, the month of Mary. We wanted to get just a little bit of that in. Uh, and so right before the break, we were talking about why is it necessary to believe? And you were, you were expounding to us this beautiful correlation uh, typology between the Ark of the Covenant and with Mary, and between David going and, and getting the Ark of the Covenant and the visitation. Uh, and so why don't you pick right back up there uh, and continue with that thought process?
1: Okay, great. So when Elizabeth addresses Mary, if you read Second Samuel 6 side by side with Luke 1, it's clear that she's making a parallel between Mary as the mother of Jesus and the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark of the Covenant was this purified vessel that contained the presence of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Well, Mary is carrying within herself Jesus Christ, the Lord himself, in the flesh. So, it's in you know, we don't normally talk about it this way. Well, I think we should, because the Ark of the Covenant is a prefigurement of Mary. And Mary is even holier than the Ark of the Covenant. She's uh, dedicated to an even higher purpose than what the Ark is dedicated to. Right. And so all of this ties into the perpetual virginity of Mary in a really clear way. Because in 2 Samuel 6, the, the parallel passage that we're looking at, they're going through the hill country of Judah and they hit a bump and the Ark starts to slide off the cart. And a guy mm-hmm. named Uzzah reaches out and touches the Ark just to right it, just to like make sure it doesn't fall off. To protect it. Right. But he struck that on the spot because the the Ark of the Covenant is so holy because it's been consecrated to the Lord that no one can touch it. Wow. And if you say, that is a prefigurement of the Virgin Mary, then it makes a whole world of sense that Mary's holiness, in particular, like holy in the sense of set apart, Mm -hmm. Mary's holiness in being set apart to carry the incarnate God into the world means that no one else um, goes through her womb. No one else. Uh, gets to be a, a brother of Christ in that way because she's wholly set aside for him. Right. And we see ways that this is prefigured in other ways. So, you know, for example, in Matthew 19, Jesus talks about people who are eunuchs or celibates for the kingdom of God. And that's like a small way that you consecrate yourself entirely and give yourself just unreservedly to God in, in a wholly unique and radical way. Right. And St. Paul talks about this also in 1 Corinthians, about just kind of these, this notion of undivided loyalties. So that same logic is at play here that you don't have these split loyalties between, like, well, I want to take care of my son
0: Jesus, but also my other sons, et cetera, et cetera. No, she's radically dedicated to him. Now, there's also a passage, I think it's in the book of Ezekiel, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that talks about God going through the gate of of the temple and that that gate was then shut that no man could enter it.
1: Yeah, this is one of the passages that the early church fathers look at. So, to set the stage a little bit, the last eight chapters of the book of Ezekiel are filled with these prophecies of the coming temple. Okay. And at the time that Ezekiel's written, it's between the first and second temple. The first temple has been destroyed, Solomon's temple, but the second temple hasn't been built yet. And so on the face of it, it looks like a prophecy about the second temple. When the second temple is built, it doesn't meet the prophecies in Ezekiel. And what's more, some of the prophecies in Ezekiel don't even seem possible for any one or any building to meet them. Because it says, for example, you know, streams of living water are going to flow out of this temple and it's going to turn salt water into fresh water. Right. And it's got these really supernatural attributes ascribed to it. Mm-hmm. And all of this makes sense in the light of the New Testament because Jesus applies that prophecy to himself. He says, streams of living water will flow from me. Mm. So on the cross, when the spear pierces his side and water and blood flow out, symbolizing baptism in the Eucharist. Right we see the streams of living water flowing from the side of the temple. Mm -hmm. And just in case we would miss this, in John 2, when Christ says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it, John just out and out tells us, but the temple he referred to was his body. Mm -hmm. So these passages in Ezekiel, these last eight chapters, they're not about the second temple. They're about the third temple, if you will, but really the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And his body is the temple. Well, now... With that frame set, look to Ezekiel 44, because around the temple, there's a temple gate. And in 44.2, it says, this gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Wow! Therefore, it shall remain shut. Yeah. And so the church fathers said, aha, exactly, that's the Virgin Mary. This is why she's perpetually a virgin because the Lord entered the world by her. He consecrated this. This is his path of the incarnation in such a radical way that it's hard to even wrap our minds around it. But mm-hmm. the eternal God became man in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so the idea that someone else is created in the womb of the Virgin Mary after that, it's just unfitting. It's, it's fitting that this should be dedicated entirely to God, that Mary's body serves as this unique and precious vessel for our Lord, and so she doesn't have relations with her husband. She doesn't have right. any other children. She's completely and
0: wholly consecrated to God. One of the other um, objections that I've heard in this is that somehow that seems to be uh, cheapening marriage. Because why would she be married to Joseph And, and if, if marital relations are not a bad thing? Why would she be uh, forgoing them and denying her husband? You know, I think that there are a few things to look at in, in that case.
1: The first, I would look at Matthew 19 again. I mentioned that before, and also in First Corinthians. Okay. And in both cases, Jesus and Matthew and then Paul in First Corinthians mm-hmm. talk about marriage and virginity. And both of them present marriage as good, and they present virginity as something even better. And we know from reading history that this is something that the early Christians practiced. So, for example, uh, Tertullian, in his letter to his wife, actually, uh, chapter 6 of it, he talks about how there are all of these Christians who are remaining celibate even though they're married. So he says, how many are there who from the moment of their baptism set the seal of virginity upon their flesh? How many again who by equal mutual consent cancel the debt of matrimony, voluntary eunuchs for the sake of their desire after the celestial kingdom? Wow. So both spouses agree that you know they're going to be celibate for the sake of the kingdom of God. And St. Paul encourages this both temporarily for those who are prone to lust, but also permanently. He says that he wishes that all were like him in the sense of being a celibate. So we, we have this kind of constant uh, scriptural theme of virginity being even higher. But I think it's important to recognize that its, it's goodness is premised off of and not contrary to the goodness of marriage. Right. So if you think about it in terms of Lent, if you give up murder for Lent, <laughs> that's not a Lenten sacrifice. <laughs> right. Like giving up something you shouldn't be doing anyway, there's no sacrifice there. Mm-hmm. Or if you give the, the blemished lamb that isn't any good, that's not a sacrifice. Right. So the sacrifice is when you take what's precious, when you take what's good, and then you give even that to God. Mm. Because that's what's more difficult. And that's what's more valuable. Because there you show that you're not after, you know, even the good things of the world, even even the great, even the sacramental things like marriage. That there's something even better, and that is is this radical statement to the Lord. Hmm. So it's it's that like that only works if marriage is good, because if marriage is bad, if it's something like murder or even like a blemished lamb,
0: right? Then virginity is not that great. It's just a, a bare minimum. So we we don't have a whole lot of time left together, Joe. So let's let's change tack just a little bit. Uh, we always say that everything that we believe about Mary points to something essential about Christ. So w- what are the implications if we don't believe that Mary was perpetually virgin? If we ignore tradition, if we ignore uh, you know, the, the whole continuity of belief, and we say, well, that doesn't make sense to us, uh, so we're not going to believe it. We're going to be like Hel- Helvetius, and we're no longer going to believe uh, that Mary was perpetually virgin. What are the implications of that for us?
1: Well, I think that there are two. Okay. Um, one of them is that I think we've, we've failed to grasp the holiness of the incarnate body of Jesus Christ. I think that if you understand that, then you understand why it's so perfect that Mary was perpetually a virgin. Why, mm-hmm. you know, you just take on a full understanding of the incarnation and really embrace the humanity of Christ and say, yes, he has sacred humanity and he takes this from his, from his mother. He's incarnate in her womb for nine months. And the flesh and blood that saved the world came from her, right. and he dwelled within her for nine months. And if you understand that, then I think the, everything else falls into place. But okay. the other reason it matters is that if you reject it, you're saying that everyone got Revelation wrong. And that's a big thing to say, to say, like, the entire early church and basically everyone up through the Reformation with just a handful of exceptions, that they all missed what was being revealed by God. And that is a refutation of revelation because to reveal something, someone has to receive it. That's right. Like, I'm not revealing to you the watch that I'm showing in my room that you can't see. If if no one sees it, if no one understands it, it's not really revealed. And Mm -hmm. so if you say nobody got what God was saying about Mary and about her perpetual virginity, he was actually saying, oh, yep, she got married. And all of the early Christians
0: for centuries just all missed this? Right that it wasn't revealed. Right. Well, you know, there, there are many more things that we could talk about and you've addressed a lot of them on your blog and maybe even some on the podcast that you've got. Why don't you give us some information about other ways that people can interact with you uh, and these, these topics? Oh yeah. So uh, my blog
1: is shameless potpourri www.shamelesspopery.com and I'm part of a new podcast that some of the seminarians here at the North American College in Rome are doing um, called Catholic Bites, B-Y-T-E-S. And so we're going to have a a CatholicBites.com. Basically, we're taking advantage of the fact that we are in Rome, and we have access to Catholics who are just amazing at all the things that they're studying. Both seminarians here, professors, just people living and working in Rome, people visiting Rome. Great. We're tapping into that to uh, to bring people uh, a view of the Catholic Church from people that they wouldn't normally be able to to sit down with. And so it's it's going to be a series of short
0: um, podcast episodes, under ten minutes, uh, on about every topic you can imagine. We're talking with Joe Heshmeyer. He's a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas, studying at the North American College in Rome. And we're talking about the perpetual virginity of Mary. When we come back, we're going to be giving away a rosary and the secret of the rosary by St. Louis de Montfort, courtesy of catholicsacramentals.org. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Glad you stuck through the break. Well, we've made it this far, and it's time to give something away. Uh, We've got a lovely rosary and a book, The The Secret of the Rosary, by St. Louis de Montfort, courtesy of catholicsacramentals.org. Great supporters of the show. We're very thankful for all they've done, and hope you go take a moment and take a look at what they have to offer. So today we have a trivia question. Get by your phone. Get ready to type in uh, 918-928-KPIM. That's 918-928-5746. You're probably going to need to be by Google for this. And uh, as soon as you know the answer, call in. Because last week uh, the the, the question was answered within minutes, uh, maybe even seconds of when the question was asked. So be ready. And Joe, why don't you give us the question for today?
1: All right, so earlier when we were talking, we were saying that uh, the visitation is prefigured by David bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And then he went into the hill country of Judah and stayed there for three months. So my question
0: is, what is the house that he stayed at for three months? Oh, Oh, that's gonna be tricky. What was the house that David stayed at for three months in the hill country? Google it, do what you need to do, pull out your Bible, search through quickly, uh, and uh, then give me a call, 918-928-KPIM. Joe, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us again all the way from Rome. It was my pleasure. Now, I actually talked to Joe earlier this week. It was a pre-recorded episode, and the reason that that's important is because uh, due to a technical glitch that we had, I've actually got some outtakes, uh, some of the, the recording that uh, didn't go as we planned, and didn't make it into the show, but there's a lot of excellent information. He answers some other questions that uh, that did not make it into the, the final edit of the show. Uh, but we're going to make that available to you. We're going to make uh, our error is your gain. Uh, and so we're going to put that sound file up on social media. You can find that at facebookcom outside the walls. Uh, our handle on Twitter is at Outside the Walls, so go like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter because there's a lot of information that you'll get there that you, you won't get just by listening to the show. Join that conversation over there. Comment on uh, on the episodes. Let us know what you think. And whenever you do that, make sure to let us know what station you're listening on because we are uh, heard on the nine stations uh, all across the state of Oklahoma and also in the great state of Kentucky, the land of my birth. So make sure you let us know which station you're listening on, and then make your comments uh, on Facebook on the the episode uh, posts. Love to hear your thoughts. Now, you can also find, if you don't have social media, uh, first, that's a a good reason to get on social media, is to interact with the show and the community. But you can also find that uh, that post with the extra information, the extra interview clips, over on our blog, timothyputnam.com, slash outside the walls. And so you'll find all the show archives there, as well as the little bit extras. We, we post some of the readings that we do here. We posted the poem that we read a couple of weeks ago. And you'll be able to find these show extras, as it were, over there on our blog. Now, next week, uh, it's not going to be apologetics all the time. That's not, for me, the goal of the show. Uh, The reason I want to do this show is for the Catholic to better understand the implications of our faith, right? There are plenty of shows out there that deal with apologetics, that help a Catholic express their faith to their friends and families, uh, and I don't want to to compete with Catholic Answers and with uh, with some of the other live call-in shows. We, one, we don't have the uh, the resources to be able to do call-in show. It's just me. I'm I'm the producer here. I, I do the recording and the producing. I don't have a call screener. I don't have all of those fancy things, uh, and so we don't have the means to compete. But neither do I really want to. And so most of the time. The topics of this show are really not going to touch on apologetics. However, there are some times uh, where the opportunity is going to present itself, like today, where we're going to take one topic and really focus in on that. You know, when you call into the call-in shows, you might get a three-minute answer uh, if you're lucky. And so our goal is, if we're going to do apologetics, we're going to do it in depth, uh, we're going to spend time on it and dig into it and look at all of the implications of that thing. So uh, don't, don't expect that we're going to turn into an apologetic show, but, you know, I, I do have some friends and family who are not yet Catholic who do have these questions. And so maybe once a month, maybe even less, we'll do some of that uh, in-depth apologetics work and we'll, we'll work on getting some guests in to help with that. But most of the time, we're going to be looking at the basic daily implications of our faith. So I'm really excited about our guest next week. We have Steve Carlin, who is the director of North American Outreach for the 40 Days for Life campaign. It happens twice a year, uh, all over the country, and really now all over the world. And he's going to come and talk to us just a little bit about their foundations about what 40 Days for Life does, and then we're going to look at that in light of the dignity of the human person. One last thing, a little bit of an announcement. Uh, Just want to remind you that we are quickly approaching the Midwest Catholic Family Conference. It's going to be August 7th through 9th this year in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, Maybe a little bit of a drive for you, but it's really worth it. This is the 16th year that they've done it, And we've been there, my wife and I, this will be our fourth year. We've been there three years previous, and we have a booth uh, that we have in the exhibit hall. So please come by and see us. We would love to see you there. But if we're not enough of a draw, well... Uh, Dr. Tim Gray is going to be there, Uh, Tim Staples will be there, Matt Marr, Simka Fisher, uh, Tony Brandt, who we talked to a few weeks ago, is going to be there speaking, and it's just a great event, and there's stuff for the kids, they've got religious sisters who come in and do the catechesis uh, for the elementary age and junior high age, Uh, they've got great high school programs, and the speakers for the adults are just top-notch. You can find out more information about that at catholicfamilyconference.org. That's catholicfamilyconference.org. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking with Steve Carlin, director of North American Outreach for 40 Days for Life. Let us know what you thought about the show. Pop on over to facebook.com slash step outside the walls or on Twitter. The handle is at outside the walls. You can also leave a comment on our comment line at 918-928-KPIM. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's your lucky day. We have an exclusive clip for our internet listeners uh, from this week's show, May 30th, 2015, where we talk with Joe Heschmeyer, seminarian at the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas, who is currently studying at the North American College in Rome. We're talking to him about the perpetual virginity of Mary, one of the Marian doctrines in the Catholic Church. And something that a lot of folks have an issue with. Maybe they don't completely understand it. Maybe the Catholic position seems a little far-fetched. And certainly to our culture, it does. This was a pre-recorded interview, and we didn't have uh, the ability to fit everything he said into our show this week. So we're creating this special edition, available only to the folks who interact with us online course this is available at facebook.com slash step outside the walls on twitter the handle there is at outside the walls and you can find it on our blog at timothyputnam.com slash outside the walls i give you those of course you've already found one of those locations if you're listening to this but i wanted to let you know how you can find us in our other locations if you want to comment on this go ahead and comment online on our social media on our blog on twitter or leave us a a message on our comment line, 918-928-KPIM. That's 918-928-5746. Now, without too much further ado, we're going to go ahead and take a listen to what Joe Heschmeyer has to say regarding the perpetual virginity of Mary and one of the common objections to that doctrine. So let's take a listen. Joe, one of the other common objections that I get to the perpetual virginity of Mary is the, the phrase in Matthew where it says Joseph did not know Mary until she had borne a son and you know of course in English that would lead us to logically conclude that after she had borne a son uh, then Joseph did know her and the path of least resistance says well that explains the other passages that talk about Jesus having brothers and sisters uh, and even some of the passages where their names are given so help us understand why the Catholic Church takes the view that, that seems a little bit more convoluted uh, and says, no, we believe that Mary was perpetually virgin uh, and that these, these other relations uh, don't refer to his brothers and sisters. Uh, let's take it all the way back to that statement until, because I think that that could potentially be the linchpin of the whole discussion. Why does the Catholic Church maintain Uh, that Mary was perpetually virgin, in spite of scriptures such as this Yeah, this is one of the fascinating points. When you
1: look at the history of the early church, they didn't have any question that Mary was perpetually a virgin. So um, St. Jerome has this hilarious uh, opening to his letter against Helvidius, uh, sometimes called the perpetual virgin, virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, And so Helvidius is this guy who, in the 4th century, is objecting to Mary's perpetual virginity. And Jerome treats this objection as just almost too ridiculous to even address. So he has this this great line um, where he says he was delayed in responding because he didn't want it to appear as if Helvidius' argument was worth responding to. (laughs) So it's beneath contempt to even address the idea that Mary would possibly not be a virgin. Everyone just said, of course she is. Insignificantly, Jerome speaks Greek. And he isn't unfamiliar with the linguistic argument. So, you know, one of the other things you pointed out was this notion of intel. In Jerome, unlike most of the English-speaking Protestants who raise the intel argument, Jerome was aware that the Greek word intel doesn't have the sense of up until a certain point, but then not after. And in this work, he actually gives a great example of that. He says... um, if I say that I, I, I don't dine in harbor until I left on the boat, it doesn't mean that I dined in harbor afterwards. It just means throughout the entire time that I was there until I left, I didn't, I didn't dine in harbor. There's, there's no sense that, but then I did dine in the harbor. And then the other example he gives, which is a little more cutting, is that Helvidius didn't repent of his sins until he was cut off in death. <laughs> doesn't mean that we then have to say, ah, but that must mean that he repented of his sins after he was cut off in death which, Jerome adds, is impossible. So he manages to prove his linguistic point while getting in a little bit of a pot shot at Helvidius for even raising this argument. So, uh, anyone not familiar with this? The, the line uh, that we're talking about is in Matthew 1, where it says that Joseph didn't know Mary until the birth of our Lord. So Jerome also just situates it and says, okay, let's, for the sake of argument, say that you're right. What would this mean, that on Christmas Day, Mary and Joseph consummated this this bond, it's not even a sensible uh, argument or a sensible theory that right then, after uh, giving birth to Christ, the the time when just speaking in terms of having just undergone a pregnancy, doesn't seem like the most likely of events. Uh, But moreover, it doesn't really explain the passage at all. And this is an area where I think Protestants are are focusing on, if you will, they're they're straining at this until and swallowing the whole other nine months without even considering it. In other words, instead of trying to figure out, well, doesn't tell mean that they did consummate the marriage afterwards, the question they should be asking is, why didn't they consummate their marriage during the nine months that Mary was pregnant? Because nothing in the angel Gabriel's message to Mary says, you have to abstain from relations with your husband. It's just not there. So an important detail to add here as well. There are two stages to a Jewish wedding. Uh, In the first stage, you're actually husband and wife, but because you don't have things like bachelor pads, you have a year after that to go and prepare a place for your wife. This is the relationship that Christ uses to describe the church. He says, behold, I go and prepare a place for you. The church is already his bride, but he's going to prepare an eternal home for her in heaven. So too, um, Joseph and Mary are already married. So in both Matthew and Luke's account, it refers to Mary's husband, Joseph. And it talks about Joseph contemplating divorce, not breaking off an engagement. This sometimes gets lost because we use the word betrothed to describe their relationship, but we don't mean an American-style engagement. We mean something very different based on the Jewish wedding practice. So that's the first point. They're already married. And the second part of the wedding is for the two of them to come together and to bring their houses into one. And Matthew tells us that while Mary is pregnant with Jesus, Joseph does this. He moves Mary into his house, and yet he still tells us that they're not consummating the marriage physically. And this should be raising all sorts of red flags for us asking why is this the case? Nothing the angel Gabriel said means that this has to be so. And there are a few answers to that. The first is that Mary is a vessel for the Lord. And this is very clear in Luke's gospel because in Luke 1, you have these amazing parallels uh, to... um, a couple different scenes from Second Samuel 6 and 7. He's talking about David moving the ark to Jerusalem, and he moves the ark through the hill country of Judah for three months. He says that he arose and went, and then he goes into Baal-Judah, the hill country of Judah. And there um, he goes and visits a house for three months, and he dances before the Lord. And all of this is a prefigurement of the visitation, in which Mary goes into the hill country of Judah, and John the Baptist dances in the womb before her, and before Christ, who dwells within her. All of this points to Mary being like the new Ark of the Covenant. And it's significant that in this part of 2 Samuel that we're talking about, Uzzah touches the Ark by mistake and is struck dead because the Ark is so holy it cannot be touched. So this notion of being radically consecrated to the Lord is something that's deeply ingrained in Jewish thought. And so it makes total sense why if you know that your betrothed or your wife is the mother of the Messiah and has the living God dwelling in her. You treat her in the same way you would treat the Ark of the Covenant, of just too holy to touch in that way. So there are other parts that also point to this as well. Um, I think it's probably worth mentioning uh, Ezekiel, the last eight chapters of the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel's written in between the first and second temple, and the latter part of the book is set up with a, a whole series of temple prophecies. And at first glance, you expect them to be prophecies about the second temple, which hasn't been built yet. But the second temple doesn't fulfill some of these prophecies. And some of the prophecies don't even seem like they could be fulfilled by the temple. So for example, streams of living water flow from the temple. Well, Jesus Christ applies these prophecies to himself when he says, for example, streams of living water will flow from me. And in John 2, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And then John just explains it to us in case we've been too daft to get it. And he says, the temple he refers to is his body. So all of these Ezekiel prophecies in the last eight chapters of Ezekiel should be recognized as christological. In that vein, you should really look at Ezekiel 44, because this is one of, the, one of the verses that the church fathers looked to when they were explaining the early Christian belief in the perpetual virginity of Mary. And it's about the, the temple gate. And it says that the temple gate... He's uh, basically untouched by anyone else because the Lord himself passed through it. So it says, this is verse 2 through, yeah, just verse verse 2, 44-2. And he said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. So the church fathers, as they're looking at this, they say, okay, we know that we're talking about Christ here. We know that this is about the coming of Christ. Who is the temple's gate that would he pass through? Who is the gate that is around the temple, his body? Like, <laughs> where do we see his body entirely enveloped by someone else? <laughs> and clearly, when he's in the womb of his mother, she serves as a sort of temple gate, protecting him in those first nine months of his incarnate life. And so this notion of her perpetual virginity ties in directly with this, that again, you have this radical consecration to God, that it's so holy that the Lord himself has passed through, no one else gets to. And so for this reason, it's unfitting that Jesus should have biological brothers. It's unfitting that anyone else should pass through the same womb that's been consecrated in this radical way to him.
0: Thanks for listening to this exclusive online content from Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash step the walls on Twitter. Our handle is at outside the walls and our blog is timothyputnam.com slash outside the walls. We're heard every Saturday on the Oklahoma Catholic broadcasting network on St. Michael Catholic radio in broken arrow and on the real life radio network in Lexington, Kentucky. I hope you'll join the listening audience and become a weekly listener of outside the walls.